Well, we turn our attention in the study of God's Word to the book of Romans, and we pick up in Romans 18 through 27. And that's kind of fitting. It was, uh, I just learned this morning of Pastor Sharp's passing, but I had in my notes here the truth that we live in a world filled with sorrows and suffering. We live in a world where there is great difficulty all around us, and oftentimes our struggle is reconciling why the world is so hard and why we suffer so much if we know that God is so good, so merciful. God pours out his blessings and he pours out his mercy and favor and his character is good. How come he allows so much suffering? How come he allows so much grief and sorrow? Why are we filled with the anxieties that fill our hearts and mind. Well, it's that that Paul answers here for us in Romans 8, 18 through 27. He puts our suffering, our sorrows in a kind of context that helps us see them properly. Because we might be tempted to think that there's something wrong with us if we're suffering too much. We might be tempted to think there must be something wrong with my faith. There must be something wrong with me. Or maybe worse, there might be something wrong with God because he allowed this kind of suffering into our lives and kind of difficulty. So our hearts in those moments of weakness are tempted to grow weary, tempted to believe a lie and to be misled. But it is Romans 8, 18 through 27 that gives us a perspective, a kind of confidence that we need to have to be able to endure through those difficulties. And what we learn and have been starting to learn through this is that our sorrows and our suffering are not in contradiction to a profoundly rich hope. In fact, our sorrows and suffering may even be seen kind of as the polish to our hope and faith. It might be seen as what to, draws it out and causes it to glisten and demonstrates the riches of it because it is through sorrows and sufferings our hearts are, are established in faith and in hope. Paul is building this idea here. He's a, a building upon it, and it's rather interesting just in the study now, in fact, I look down here in the English from verse 18 through verse 30. Every verse starts with a conjunction. And in most every case here, as I'm looking, that even in the English that's reflected, but it's certainly in the Greek. Notice verse 18, 4, verse 19, 4, verse 24. In verse 21, there is a chi, which is and in the Greek. And he adds verse 22, 4, verse 23, and verse 24, 4. He's just building a piece upon piece upon piece. It's idea added to idea added to idea here. He's just giving just overwhelming insights into the hearts of uh, an heir of God, a believer. Paul is building. Then at the end of this, he then turns back to his original style of writing in verse 31. He goes back to his question and answer style. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He gets back to building his overarching themes in verse 31. But for now, he is directing our thoughts. And what he is directing us to is to understand the work of God in the children of God, and particularly the work of God by the Spirit as the Spirit's working in us. The Spirit of God has made us heirs. The Spirit of God is at work within us, and to which we, as verse 15 say, we cry out to God, Abba, Father. We are children of God, 
And as children of God, we are led by the Spirit of God, and we are heirs, and the Spirit is testifying within us that we are heirs. That's fact, that's what 17 says. And if children heirs, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. What Paul lays out is the case that believers will be led into suffering. We're going to be led into difficulties. This isn't contrary to the work of God. It is actually inconsistent with the work of God. He's going to lead us and direct us. Now, as we saw in verse 18 last week, there are many ways in which we face suffering. Sometimes we face suffering from the outside as people mistreat us. Fellow believers mistreat us, family may mistreat us, uh, neighbors may mistreat us, even the hostile world, uh, the ungodly would mistreat us, but they will be opposed to the truth. And there's a kind of suffering that comes from that when people mistreat you. But there is also a suffering in a dark providence when natural disasters happen, when diseases take place in one's life, illnesses come upon them. All of these change the course of our life and these cause sufferings. There are the sufferings, and again, I think about Paul and his own difficulties as he suffered shipwreck, he was in a storm and had, again, natural disaster causing difficulties for him. Then there's the suffering of temptations. When we are tempted by this world to move away from what we believe, away from what we are in Christ, and we're pulled into this world to follow this world system, causes great difficulty as we are pulled towards ungodliness and we're resisting. And then lastly, and I think this is contextually what Paul is emphasizing, is the suffering that comes against our own corruption. When we aren't what we ought to be, when we do not live out what we ought to live out, when we are, as verse 13 indicates, that we are living by the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the body. When we're in the midst of that battle, warring against the flesh, resisting evil, and it's difficult, and it's a struggle. This is all suffering we face in this world. And this is all suffering that our Lord himself had to face other than the personal corruption. He had to live with the outside world hostile to him. He had to live with the dark providences that come. He had to live with the, the temptations in this world. In all those ways, he did not give in to sin so we share in the fellowship of his sufferings. We share into the, with him, striving for holiness and righteousness. We share in its difficulties. But that doesn't make it any easier for us. And it's true. It's not easy to face the sufferings, the groanings in this world. It's not, difficult. It's not easy at all. And as I said, sometimes it causes us to question why in fact, it is rather interesting that uh, uh, the kind of American mindset is, you know, come to America, live the American dream, you can prosper, you can uh, be successful here, you can come and, and um, have health, wealth, and prosperity here in America. And with that comes kind of a, an American gospel, which is that, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That God is here to bless you, he is here to make life happy, he is here for you to be blessed by him so that everything in your life leads to a kind of happiness. So you don't want to hear a message, well, God has, you know, loves you and has a wonderful plan for you, and that wonderful plan is to make you suffer. That gospel doesn't sell as well. 
But that's exactly what Paul unfolds here. And we're not curmudgeons trying to destroy people's happiness and joy and saying, you know, don't seek happiness. We're realists. In fact, we're believers because this is what Paul says here in the Word of God. The believer will head into suffering, is going to face difficulties, and that the joy and happiness is not the measure of our hope and faith. Rather, it is the perseverance and endurance under that suffering that demonstrates the riches of our faith and the marvelous work of hope within us. So he pointed out this whole section from verse 18 through verse 27 is filled with, with the grief filled with suffering, filled with sorrow. Notice it in verse, again, verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. That is delay, it's, it's waiting. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21, it is waiting itself to be set free from its slavery to corruption. Verse 22, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Verse 23, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Come down to verse 25, we wait eagerly. We don't have it yet, we're waiting for it, we're anticipating what is to come. And in verse 26, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This whole section is about delay, anticipation, anxious waiting, suffering, groaning. These are normal. And there should be a sense where these things are not contrary to our understanding of God's marvelous work among us, but actually we should be aware that God can take all of these things and use them marvelously for our good. We tend to err when we face suffering in one of two ways. First, we err by believing that, we can't, that God cannot use this suffering. We have to be happy. So this is the kind of person that even when they're in grief, even when they're in sorrow, they're always trying to put on a happy face, a happy demeanor, a happy perspective. They won't dwell at all in the difficulties. So they drown out their their life with pleasures. They seek to fulfill only the positive things so that they could be upright all the time. Or the second error, the other way in which we would err when facing sorrows and suffering is this, is that we're consumed by it. Living in that kind of sorrow and suffering, consumed by it. Always living in fear, always living in anxiety, consumed by thoughts of despair, both of which are wrong. What needs to happen is that while we are in the midst of our sorrow and suffering, we acknowledge that it's there, but we're anchoring ourselves in hope. And that's what Paul draws out here. Shows us how to anchor our where to anchor our hope in, what we ought to do. Back in verse 18, this is all setting it up, and then he just shows three examples from 19 to 27. He gives the example of creation, the example of believers, and the example of the Spirit. But 18 really sets the stage for it all, and Paul gives us this greater perspective. 
And the greater perspective is I consider, that is, I, I set in my mind, I, I resolve and determine that this present, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is a theme of the Apostle Paul. He speaks of the riches of God's grace still to come. We get little tastes of it now. And God's grace and favor towards us. There are little moments of glory that come. You study the scriptures and you see a new insight. Your heart rejoices when you're in sweet fellowship with God in prayer and you find a great communion with him. There is a a rejoicing in the heart. There is a, a kind of rejoicing that comes when you see spiritual fruitfulness as you minister to your family or even in your own heart. There is a, a kind of rejoicing in small ways when you see spiritual progress. Even in your own life, there's a rejoicing. But there is still something more to come that God is going to demonstrate that we ought to be aware of. And I want to draw your attention to it from, from Ephesians chapter 2. So if you turn over to Ephesians 2 and 3... This is just adding to that idea that Paul is anticipating the glory to come. In Ephesians 2, this is that marvelous section of God's work of salvation. We are described in our former state in verses 1 through 3. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were in rebellion. We were walking according to the prince of the power of the the air, Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. We lived in this rebellion and we lived in unrighteousness. But that marvelous truth, verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. While we were in that state of rebellion, God rescued us. He delivered us. He made us alive. He brought us and united us to Christ. Verse 6, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And now here's the key for us. Verse 7, So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save us? Why did he rescue us? What did he do? Well, first, he rescued us to join us to Christ. But secondly, he rescued us to show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. To bless us beyond measure. Now, the question is, when is that? Well, verse 7, so that in the ages to come. When are these ages? There have been two ideas that have been Presented, the ages to come may mean now, it might mean the church age. Be right now, he could be demonstrating his riches towards us. Or it could mean in eternity to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, and the life to come. Those ages are the ages. What would the answer be? Well, I think it becomes clear that the answer is that in eternity, in the ages to come, means to reference to eternity, that God is going to pour out the surpassing riches. And the reason why I would point that out is because how Paul uses the word ages or aeons. Notice back in chapter 2, he used the word, or yeah, chapter 2, verse 2, he uses the word, uh, the same word 
for ages. It says there in verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Actually, the translation of that phrase meaning should be according to the ages of this world. The word ages is used there in verse 2, even though our translation doesn't bring it out. What he's saying is this present time, the age of this time, what's happening at this time is the age of the prince of the power of the air who is at war controlling. He is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is this age. But verse 7, the ages to come is a different age. So what is to come here is that God is going to demonstrate the riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And we only taste a little bit right now. We are waiting for what is to come. Jump over to chapter 3. Paul adds to this this demonstration that that God has a particular purpose to take his redeemed people, and to demonstrate the riches of his grace in these redeemed people. He talks about it in chapter 3, makes it known here in chapter 3 that he's rejoicing that he was a gospel minister, that he'd be called out to, to give the, minister, uh, the mystery of the gospel, that as Jew and Gentile be re- reconciled through Christ to God. He's overwhelmed by that. But then he, he uh, says here in verse 9, <clears throat> That his work, well, verse, we'll start in verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So what he's saying, from all past, this work of redemption through for the Gentiles to bring them to God has been hidden. But now, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God has now brought the gospel through which Paul is preaching that now God is making known to the heavenly host the redemptive work. It's us at this moment. Those who believe are being demonstrated before the heavenly host, before the angels above. We're being dem- God is demonstrating the riches of his grace in us. Back to chapter 2, verse 7. What his plan is, is to show off the riches of his kindness to all the heavenly hosts for all of eternity. Now, we don't experience that yet. Not fully. But this is what motivates the believer. Head back to chapter 8 of Romans. Then, it is this hope, this anticipation of the glory to come, this anticipation of God's kindness, this anticipation of God's deliverance, this anticipation of the riches of his mercy that motivates us and moves us even when we face sufferings and difficulty, even when we're groaning under the weights of of this corrupt world and our own personal corruption, even when we live in a sinful context and we are, uh, again, constantly feeling out of place. What gives us motivation through all of that is the awareness of the riches to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The riches of the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
Now that would be enough. Just dwelling on that is enough. But Paul then goes further and, and builds on this. And he gives us, as I stated, three examples here from 19 through 27. Examples of suffering. Creation suffers, we suffer, and the Spirit suffers along us, along with us to help us out. When we are in that difficulty, is the Spirit working alongside of us to help us? This is what Paul is unfolding. And so let's look at this first one here. That the creation suffers difficulty along with us. Because I believe this, that suffering isn't antithetical to the work of God within us. Groaning and facing difficulties in this life and facing the pressures of life, they're not antithetical to our faith. They actually strengthen, clarify, beautify the marvelous work of God within us. And here's what Paul says to unfold that. We see, first of all, the groanings of creation. Notice from verse 19 through, or, yeah, 19 through 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul gives this kind of illustration here to describe that we're not alone in this suffering that we're facing. Even creation is suffering. Now the question is, what is creation referring to here? Is it referring to animate objects or inanimate objects? Is it referring to the living or is it referring to the not living? Is it referring to moral beings or is it referring to a rock and tree? What exactly is it that Paul is referring to here when he is saying the creation? And I think the answer is that he is referring to inanimate creation. He is referring and giving poetic form to describe all of creation. This isn't the living creatures. This is the inanimate creatures or those creatures that aren't moral beings. That creation is what is anticipating. Why would that be? First of all, we can just rule out some characters here. It's not angels that are sitting here waiting, groaning, waiting anxiously because the angels don't have a hope of redemption. The angels aren't in heaven. The angels aren't restrained by an evil context. They're in the presence of God. And the fallen angels, demons, aren't referring to here, even they're under corruption. They're not looking for deliverance because what is to come for them is judgment. In fact, even the demons here on earth wondered if Christ was coming too soon and asked him directly that question in Matthew's gospel. So the angels, the demons, aren't anticipating redemption. So it's not angel forces. Some have thought, well, maybe it's referring to believers. So he's talking about believers are sitting here anxiously waiting. Well, that can't be the case because verse 23 is the contrast between the creation and us. Notice, but also we ourselves. So the very distinction between the creation and us means he's not referring to believers here, nor could he be referring to unbelievers because unbelievers aren't waiting for God's restoration. And again, they would be in the same state as the demons. 
Their time of God's uh, restoration would be that to judgment. So they aren't the ones. So what's left? All that's left then is the rest of creation, the inanimate creation that's around us. And this is the way the scriptures have often spoken. It's spoken of creation able and even willing to speak forth. Matthew In Luke's gospel, Luke 19 verse 40, Jesus speaking and talking about the praise that is due him, and he says this in Luke 19.40, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So look, even if, if man won't say anything, even creation is going to cry out. The inanimate objects are going to cry out. Or Isaiah 55 and verse 12 says this, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Meaning the inanimate objects of this world, this creation, are going to call out in joy and clap their hands. This is a kind of poetic description where Paul is personifying creation and saying creation has a voice, a desire, a will, to, to experience the deliverance from sin, deliverance from the curse, deliverance from the corrupting influence of sin upon it. Now, and this is just a, a marvelous insight to say that even the world we live in, Paul's saying, it longs for deliverance. And he shows the nature of the suffering of this creation. First of all, the suffering that it experiences is evident in its delayed fulfillment. Notice verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. There's a kind of suffering in waiting. The kind of suffering in waiting for something that is good. It's described here by Paul as that anxious longing. The anxious longing, waiting eagerly here. The anxious longing, that word is only used two times in the New Testament. It's used right here. The other time it's used is in Philippians 1.20. When Paul says that my earnest expectation and hope, my anxious longing is this, that God is going to come and vindicate me. But in this, it's the idea of just waiting for something, anticipating something to come, and it's not yet there, not yet arrived. You could be like this. You could decide you're going to buy a ticket to a sporting event or a concert or something. You know the date's coming. It's on the calendar. It's out there. You have the tickets in the hand, but now you have to wait the months and weeks until that time comes. All kinds of things come up that threaten that event, and so you are uncertain of whether or not it's going to happen, but you keep waiting in this anticipation for that event to occur. That's the idea here. Creation is waiting in this kind of anxious waiting and anticipation for this event. And there's a a kind of suffering in that. There's a kind of suffering you face, and honestly, it's a kind of suffering I know many of us don't like. At least I don't like it. I mean, I don't like it so much so that I know that when my wife buys a Christmas present, I'm ready for it now. You don't need to wait. You don't, you know, same thing with a birthday present. She bought me a birthday present in March. My birthday just moved. I 
It's moved up. It's, I don't need to wait for the anxious. There's an anxious longing. I don't like that anxious longing. I trust some are also like me in that. <laughs> There's an anxious longing that creation was under described here. It's waiting eagerly, waiting for it. Threaten, even facing various threats that may come upon it is waiting for it. And what exactly is creation waiting for? Notice again, verse 19, it's waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. He's waiting for the revelation of the redeemed. He's waiting for the children of God to be manifest. Again, this was what God had been praised for by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, 3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's waiting for the redeemed to be revealed. Now, I know some people don't like the idea of election, but listen, it's exactly what Paul brings out, that God, that the even creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, plural. Not singular, it's not waiting for the Son of God, but the sons, plural, of God. He's waiting, they're waiting for the revelation of God's elect. Jump down to verse 21. What is creation waiting for? It wants its freedom from corruption into, notice, the freedom of the glory of the children of God, plural. It's waiting for when the children of God receive their redemption, their deliverance. It is waiting for that. Because then it will be set free as well. It will be delivered. All of this. Because in the midst of this, there is a particular number that creation is waiting for. A particular group There has to be a particular group because the creation isn't satisfied now, though people are being redeemed and being revealed as redeemed of God even now, but it's not yet fully there. There is a particular number. There will be a final one. There will be the last one in which will come to light and then redemption will come, of which then the glory will be fully revealed and so creation is waiting Waiting for that last one. Like Mr. Irrelevant. The very last one chosen. You know Mr. Irrelevant? He is the last man chosen in the NFL draft. You know, he's a, you go through the whole draft in the final round. The very final person is selected that is Mr. Irrelevant. So even so, the creation is waiting for the last one, Mr. Irrelevant, who won't be irrelevant at that moment. He's going to be a lot of rejoicing when that last one has professed faith confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. Someone told me between services, you know what they call a, the guy who graduated in uh, medical school, the last graduate in medical school, they still call him doctor. Same thing in regards to uh, the believer, is still a believer. We hear creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, waiting for this moment when the sons of God, the children of God receive their freedom, for it too will be delivered. So there is an anxious waiting for a particular time, a particular event is off, and it's looking for it. Secondly, it suffers under this, it suffers in futility. Subjected, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, 
subjected to futility. What is futility? It's the attempting to do something and making no progress, knowing that you have the ability to do it, trying, but never succeeding. It's futility. That's why the old adage describing futility is like herding cats. You know, you just something you can't do. You're trying, it just can't happen. I think about futility, I, I thought uh, it's either, it's like trying to raise toddlers, you know, and you're like, I've explained this to you a million times, though I have to explain it again. And, and then literally just two minutes ago I told you, and now I'm having to do it again. That feels like futility. Or counting sand. I mean, I couldn't think about something more futile than trying to count the grains of sand. Can you imagine counting can- sand and then sneezing and having to start over? I mean, that would be just my luck, I think. I would just try. It's futile. That's the idea here. There's a futility that creation has, that it is designed by God to bring forth a certain level of prosperity, a certain level of peace, a certain level of protection, and it can't do it. Creation, which would bear its fruit and bear its riches easy, would provide the rich beauty that it provides, yet subjected to futility. It cannot do it as it was designed. It's under the curse. It's under the limitations of the curse. It's under the fall. And notice, again, as verse 20 indicates, this wasn't done by its own will. It wasn't willfully brought into this state, but it was made subjected of him who subjected it. God brought the curse upon creation because of Adam's rebellion. Adam rebelled, and the head of God's creation, when he fell, he brought with it all of creation under the corruption of the curse. Creation intended to design and bring forth its fruit easy, intended and designed to bring forth its prosperity, is now filled with thorns and thistles and great difficulty. All because of the rebellion of Adam. All because of rejection of God's purposes and ways. So the scriptures hint at the restoration of human creation. Peter says that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, anticipating this day in which the, even the heavens and the earth are going to be remade. And Isaiah, I love the description in Isaiah 65 and verse 25. Listen, described there by the prophet Isaiah, it says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Okay, I understand the lamb eating weeds and plants, but not the wolf. In fact, it's the wolf grazing on the lamb today. But that not so. In eternity, you have the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And they shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. There will be a kind of restoration brought about in creation that there will be peace even in the animal world. That is what creation is longing for. Waiting for this today in which redemption will come, slavery to corruption will be ended, and it will be delivered and enjoy its freedoms. I love uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones described this. And in describing it, he, he made an observation where he said that, that each year it seems like the seasons are an attempt for creation to overthrow the curse. That you move from winter into spring and newness of life comes out and from spring into summer where all of the trees and the plants bear forth their fruits only to fall back into corruption again. For the fall to come 
for the difficulties that come upon the plant life to lead to winter's dormancy. Only to start over again with the attempt to overcome. And it's almost as if creation is regularly trying to break forth. And there is something in the seasons that show us that, the sufferings of this creation. He goes on, Paul describes it further. It's not just subject of futility, attempting to do something, the idea of taking one step forward and two steps back, this attempting to be under that despair of never succeeding. But then there's the suffering that comes from the slavery to corruption, verse 21. Is looking forward to be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It longs for the children of God to receive its reward, for it will be right there with it, receiving rich reward. Suffering. And then he describes its kind of durations right now. Verse 21, the creation itself also will be, or verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Remember that when Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, 25, describes the end events, he describes them as being pains of childbirth. Famines that will come and pestilence and other things that will come. All of these are signs of the childbirth waiting for the sufferings to come. This is what creation is groaning under, under this difficulty. Waiting for, anticipating. In verse 22, this creation groans and suffers these pains. That's the first group. Notice, again, the second group then. The suffering of God's people, verse 23 through verse 25. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Yes, creation groans as it's anticipating, but we too groan. Creation's waiting, creation's living in this anxious anticipation. Creation is waiting eagerly for the revealing of the Son of God, and so we too are eagerly waiting. Creation's waiting for the redemption of God's chosen people. We are waiting for our adoption as sons. We are waiting for our redemption of our body. We're waiting just as creation is waiting. And as Paul describes here, I love, first of all, how he describes the believer. He is having the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is upon us. The Spirit is moving us. The Spirit is shaping us. The Spirit is at work within us. That's the description of the believer, one who manifests the Spirit of God, first fruits of the Spirit. But then he describes us as this, groaning within ourselves. We, like the creation, are groaning. What is the groaning here? This isn't kind of wailing. This isn't the wailing that comes from despairing. This isn't a kind of hopelessness and a hopeless cry. That's not the groaning here. Recently I was <clears throat> interacting with a, um, an unbeliever, uh, an individual that shared the gospel with this person many times and, and hostilely been rejected person wanted nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with the truth, and just just antagonistic to Christianity. 
even offended by it when presented. And this individual uh, recently was walking around and uh, crying out verbally because they're under uh, a difficulty right now, facing a, a diagnosis that's going to lead to certain death. And the person was walking around groaning despairingly saying, I do not want to die, I do not want to die. And I thought about the contrast. That is the despair of one who has rejected God, the, the, the weight and anxiety of death coming. There is no deliverance. So when the believer groans, we don't groan in that way. We don't groan in a kind of despair and uncertainty. But we know suffering. We know groaning. We know when we groan that we are not what we want to be. We groan when we desire what we are not ought, we not ought to desire. When we are not desiring the things we ought, we groan. We, we desire, we groan because we're not longing for the things we ought to long for regularly. We groan when relations are difficult. When relationships struggle, when we have to work hard at them, when we have to press in, when we have to seek reconciliation and restoration, when we have to continue to show love and forgiveness, when we have to continue to persevere in those relationships which ought to be easy, ought to be natural, ought to be free, but they're hard, there's a kind of groaning that takes place. We groan when we're inconsistent with what we profess. We groan when we don't understand clearly both what God has said or or what's taking place. We groan when we don't see the plan of God unfolding rapidly, when we have to continue to wait. We groan for the glories of heaven when we long for God's riches to be manifest. We we groan for peace and for love. We groan for righteousness when we see unrighteousness flourishing around us. We groan for seeing the glory and the riches of God. We long for all of that. So yes, the believer groans, but we don't groan in a kind of despair that the unbeliever has. We groan, as he says, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. When is the deliverance coming? When will the redemption take place? That is what we long for. To which Paul then adds, verse 24 and 25, this, for in hope we have been saved. For hope which is seen is not hope, For who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. How do we face all that suffering? How do we face all that difficulty? We face it filled with hope, filled with the anticipation that God is going to fulfill what he said. We face it with the awareness that this is not our home. This is a temporary transition for us. Our hope is in the promises that God has made known that redemption is coming, deliverance is coming, rescue is on its way. So in that, friends, let me just encourage you in the midst of this. When you face those difficulties from whatever angle they come upon you, whether it's the face, you know, facing your mortality, facing accusations, facing corruptions in this world, however you face them in the midst of it, anchor yourself in a kind of persevering hope, trusting in God's promises. As I said last week, again, we are not, um, our hope is not measured by our happiness. It is measured by our enduring faith that is strengthened by sound doctrine. 
And in that, our hope is revealed. As Paul says here at the end of verse 25, it's a perseverance that will be demonstrated in our hope. We, are, we can measure our hope by the quality of our perseverance in faith. So never despair. You're not alone in the midst of the difficulty. Even the creation around you is longing for it. And your fellow believers are also longing for that deliverance. So you're not alone. And you may say at this moment, well, pastor, I feel very alone. I feel very weak. I keep failing. I keep falling short. There's no deliverance for me. And I say, come back next week because you'll see the Spirit of God helping you. Because that's exactly what Paul says in verse 26 and 27. For even in our failures, when we fall short, the Spirit is interceding on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. So even God is at work helping us. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these marvelous truths. They do comfort our heart and they set our mind in proper perspective. When we are tempted to be self-reliant, we are tempted to to measure the quality of our faith and endurance by our happiness. It's in passages like this that we learn the truth, that you can take us through the difficulties and demonstrate a kind of increasing hope and encouragement that will come and the faith that will overcome the difficulties. And we do rejoice that in the midst of our personal sufferings, this side of eternity, that we know that redemption is coming for the children of God and even creation. So that one time when you restore all order, everything will operate no longer in futility, but operate as you designed. And the riches of your marvelous grace will be on display And we anticipate that time when your kindness will be lavished upon us and evident to all so that all will see for all of eternity the riches of your grace towards us. Even now, when we're tempted to doubt that or question it or wonder if it's there, may we have all the more confidence in your revealed word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.